folks coming on in. I see the numbers are still ticking up, but I feel like we are ready to get everything kicked off. And I would like to officially then welcome everybody to today's session. Um, my name is Kalia Garrido, and I head up marketing and events here at Great Data Minds. Uh, I feel like a lot of people probably on the line today know us, but if you don't, Great Data Minds is a collective of passionate data activists, and we are on a mission to modernize the world of data. Um, we do this in two ways. The first is through our services, which is strategic planning, education, the deployment of critical data projects, um, and then also by hosting great events just like today. So we like to bring um, transformational thought leaders uh, to the center stage and, and sort of talk about their contribution to the world of data and analytics. So some housekeeping for our attendees on today's event. This is a webinar, so as you can see, your cameras and microphones are off, but of course we wanna hear from you. And so we always encourage people to get active in the chat. You can also use the Q&A along the way if you want, um, and we'll save a little bit of time at the end of our session today for a more formal Q&A. Um, and so today we are in for a treat. We are joined by the esteemed Caroline Carruthers. Thank you for joining us today. Oh, now you've called me esteemed. I feel like I've got to live up to that title. Thank you. Let's go, let's go deeper then. Let, let's start to read through some of your accolades that we have here as well. So Caroline is an award-winning data expert and co-founder of the global data consultancy Carruthers and Jackson. Um, she was one of the first women to take on the role as a chief data officer in the UK public sector. In 2018, she was named one of the top 20 inspirational female role models in data by the female lead. Uh, in 2020, she won the Computing's Rising Stars Entrepreneur of the Year Award for her consulting prowess. And she is, of course, an accomplished author with several best-selling books, um, including today's book that we are going to be reviewing, which is the Chief Data Officer's Playbook. Um, so now you really have more. Now, now, I feel like it's lovely when your mum does your write-up for you, doesn't it? I mean, your mum and I was also... <laughs> Um, and then, of course, to interview um, Caroline today, we have our very own Mike Lampa. He is our chief analytics officer here at Great Data Minds. Um, Mike is a true transformational agent working with enterprises to modernize their analytics programs from the ground up. And he's got a boatload of experience uh, on both sides of the desk uh, as an executive analytics practitioner and then as also a consultant and an employee in Global 100 Enterprises. So thank you both so much for joining us today. And Mike, I will turn the floor to you. Thank you, Kalia. And you have a beautiful day as you watch us. Caroline, I Caroline, I am so excited to have this opportunity to chat about your book. Um, as I said, when we were getting ready for the webinar to begin, I just, I consumed the, the content in that book and it's already finding ways of applicability into our practice. So thank you so much. Oh, no, you're welcome. I think it's fantastic that it resonated. And for everybody out there, Mike does research so well that I genuinely thought he was writing another book on my book. I <laughs> took so many notes. Only 11 pages, guys. <laughs> <laughs> so in the preface, uh, or preface rather, of the book, um, you started the Chief Data Officer Summer School. Hmm. Right. Um, and I love this because three years in, you have what, almost a thousand alumni? Uh, over now, because that was uh, written a year before the last one. So we've over 1,600 now of alumni 
that we oh, regularly wow. talk to around the world and just try and keep them updated with them. A large part of summer school was it's not just about learning from myself and Peter, but it's about learning from each other. And I think there's such a fantastic community of data people out there. We want just to help connect them. Yeah. And, and, and it is a small, tight community. Mm. Without a doubt. So that is awesome, you know, to create that that peer-to-peer fabric, um, collaboration fabric. I love that. So talk to me about the accidental entrepreneur. <laughs> well, I think um, it was really funny because when Peter and I originally wrote the Chief Data Officer's playbook, um, it was a bit accidental to come up with the playbook, if I'm honest. Peter and myself met at a data conference and we did that immortal line of he'd watched my presentation and liked what I had come out with. And I'd watched his presentation and really liked the, the voice that he presented with. And we did that thing over a, you know, a coffee at a conference. You know what? We should write a book. You know those wonderful conversations you have where it's like, oh, that's a great idea. And honestly, you think nothing more of it because right. how many conversations like that have you had? Um, but we did swap numbers and promise to keep in touch. And it was one of those kind of burning ideas. So after about four days, I cracked. And I think I rang him on the Saturday morning after we met and went, do you know what? I've been thinking, I can't get this idea out of my head. And he was like, oh, thank goodness. I'm so pleased that you called. And that's how the first edition of the book came about. But The Accidental Entrepreneur came about because of, um, that was a chapter I wrote for the second edition of the book, the updated edition, because... um, when the first book came out, we literally thought we were doing nothing more than putting a stake in the ground. When Peter and I were originally chief data officers and some of the early chief data officers, um, it felt a little bit wild west out there. There wasn't really anything to help us do our role other than the community that we were building. And I've got some amazing friends who um, kind of we all feel like we've grown up together in that kind of space. Mm-hmm. Um, but from putting the book out there, Um, we had a lot of people and a lot of organizations come to us and ask for help. And honestly, Peter and I flipped a coin to see which of us would stay in business and which one of us would actually lead the setting up of the business. It was as complicated as that. For data people, we didn't do the pros and cons. We flipped a coin. There's a video of it out there somewhere. (laughs) I won the coin toss and got to go and set the business up. And it literally wasn't until about a year after setting the business up and somebody said, so what's it feel like to be an entrepreneur that it occurred to me that I was one? Because uh, so hence the accidental entrepreneur, because I was just too busy solving problems to think about what I was doing. That makes sense. Yes, it does. Absolutely. Uh, that's, That's a beautiful incarnation story. So as the book is um, plays out, we, the concept of 100-day plan, 300-day plan comes along. Um, and we're going to talk about some more of those details as, lo- as well as some of the statistics out there around the success rate or and or mm-hmm. the inverse of, of the CDO. Um, so give, can you give us a reflection of the first 100 days in the CDO's chair? I think that for first, any first 100 days. I think it was 300 days. I'm sorry. Yeah. yeah, but it's, it's it kind of starts, and I think what we try and do is encapsulate the first one hundred, and then it goes on to the three hundred. Mm-hmm. It's an incredibly scary place to be, mm. especially for someone who's walking into a role, as still a lot of us are, as a chief data officer, when there hasn't been a chief data officer before you. 
So I would love to say it's like having a blank piece of paper because I think that would be less scary. But what it is, it's like having a blank piece of paper with a whole telephone book of legacy that sits behind it that influences the kind of um, decisions that you need to make in those first 100 days. And I think one of the mistakes that a lot of people make in those first 100 days is to try and do too much too fast, too quickly, without taking a breath. And one of the wonderful things about data I find, and, and we often hear the phrase data drives digital, but I don't think we spend enough time when people drive data. So they uh, make decisions on the back of it, create it, use it, tell stories with it, all those other, other wonderful things that we can use data for. Mm-hmm. So a really big part of that first 100 days for me is to get to know the people around you. And this is why I talk about the whole idea of the coffee and the cake and mm-hmm. you know, take people, take your peers, take your stakeholders, get them a coffee, make them relaxed. And I know this sounds a bit converse, but um, don't talk to them around data. Ask them about the kind of things that keep them awake at night, what, you know, the direction they're taking their departments, the things that excites them, because I think that will help them share their passion for you. And you can learn so much about how you can use data to help them. I think you can come up with something much more powerful than if you walk around the organization trying to find a use case, because that immediately gets people on the back foot. Right, right. And, and, and asking, truly trying to get to the need of the end stakeholders, and, and whether it's need or pain, um, one of the concepts that you brought out is there's this need to continuously balance, balance your efforts across a value to risk mitigation continuum. And, and not a lot of people are able to do that, as well as there's this strategy that we need to lay down as a long-term strategy so that this isn't just a one, you know, one trick uh, pony. Um, yet mm-hmm. I can't spend the day filling up my shelves with strategic plans. And it is such an incredibly hard balance to achieve. And I know that, um, I think the phrase that I use most often this is perfection is a disease when it comes to those first 100, those first 300 days it's too easy to get caught up into the, I can't share my thoughts until they're perfect. I can't take my first step until I know exactly where I'm going to. The analogy in the story that I tend to use, especially in those first 100 days, it's not about finding out exactly where you're taking the organization. It's about knowing which field you're trying to get to from where you are now. Mm-hmm. So if you can find the right field and point the whole direction, the whole direction of the organization towards please head in this direction. And while they're slowly massing, you're running ahead and trying to find the right part of the field to plant the flag in. Mm-hmm. There you go. I love that. So let's go on. Um, why does an organization need a CDO and how does an organization come about realizing they're at that tipping point? So um, the first thing is, I think for some organizations, they don't. So we work, I think, for a lot of larger organizations, they absolutely do. But what I wouldn't want to do is try and put a whole whitewash on every organization must have a chief data officer. There are smaller organizations, there are charitable organizations. Um, I think you have to find the right kind of balance for you and your organization. That said, every organization should have a senior leader who understands the importance of data as an asset. So you might not be calling them a chief data officer, but even in smaller organizations, you should have a data leader who accepts the baton 
that is, I'm going to use data for the betterment of the whole organisation. And I think the tipping balance, the tipping point tends to be, for me, when if all you're doing in your, when you're talking about data is talking about that risk adverse side, and you're never thinking about what value you can add, you need a chief data officer to come and pick that load up for you. Because yeah, you know, that can, you know, tiptoeing along that continuum is incredibly um, mm. exciting, without a doubt, because I do love to do that. Um, you, you also brought a point out around here, going to the data asset, is there is a real tangible exchange rate between There's, using data I'm as alive. an asset uh -huh, um, and getting to real profits. Yeah. Sorry, what did he did bring you? Say, what did he, bring you? <laughs> he brought me some water, bless him. I've been in meetings all day. Oh, that's so beautiful. Yeah. So, I mean, truly, there is there there is a tangible uh, exchange rate between the effective use of data as an asset and mm -hmm. the, the the value that can be measured um, and and delivered to the organization without a doubt. And I've had a lot of chief financial officers tell me there's no way I can do that. Now, you see, I think this is where um, you talked about, you know, the balance between the risk averse, and the value add side. I often talk about it being a pendulum swing because it's not as simple as just spending time in one part of it or the other. It's like any pendulum. It will swing back and forward mm -hmm. and you'll find the right swing balance for your organization. But when it comes to actually proving the value of an asset, it's a lot easier to find those kind of financial boundaries on the risk adverse side it's a lot easier to talk about how much you can save an organization or protect an organization from the risk adverse side mm -hmm. however the stuff that excites people is on the value add side yeah. so whenever you're describing it you actually need both and i think the issue i've seen a lot of people fall or the trap that i've seen a lot of people fall into is the only focus on the tangible so that it's like, I know I can save 4 million, but what you're effectively saying to the organization is, but it's boring and it's not exciting. And why would that really get your passion up about doing something? The trick in a lot of cases, and I think this is coming out more and more, is it isn't as good as saying, this is the tangible and this is the intangible. It's, this is the tangible, this is the intangible. And if we collect this data, we can turn that intangible into tangible but we are on a journey to be able to do that. And the, the, the strategies that the chief data officer is trying to come up with, they're not independent, right? It's gotta be linking and driving a larger mission. They can't be. Um, you know, if a, if a data strategy doesn't underpin your company or your organize, organizational strategy, why are you doing it? Mm -hmm. um, you know, the whole point of it should be, how are you going to use data? How are you going to bring it to life to really help drive your organization forward? And if it sits in isolation and it doesn't fundamentally underpin what you're trying to do, then it's not worth the paper it's written on. Mm -hmm. and, and, and it has an opportunity to inform the business strategy as well. Um, it absolutely should. Yep. Please go ahead. Sorry, all I was going to say was it was really interesting, actually, because um, we do some work with a charity in the UK at the moment. Mm -hmm. And it was fascinating because 
it was actually working with them on their data strategy that helped them realize that their charity mission, their organizational vision could be so much bigger. So it was actually the development of a data strategy that's made them think seriously about their charitable mission mm. and not changing the direction of the mission, but looking at the bigger ways and principles that they could use to do that better, faster, do it more. And it was without looking at the data, uh, I don't think they would have got there as quickly. Mm -hmm. And if that mission got refined where people were getting more excited, more passionate around it, that's got to be an intrinsic motivator for people to want to get a, behind this data strategy enablement. Um, 100%. If anything, and I think they're an indication of a lot of organizations, their ambition has grown to the point now where actually they're slightly limited in their capability because it takes time to scale up for some of these things. So they're keeping an eye on this greater mission that they want to do. But what they've done is put some really tangible stepping stones in place to help them recognize that it is a journey, but they're on the journey and they're heading in the right direction. All right, let's change gears a little bit. Um, we got lots of cool chapters to go through. <laughs> what are those secret ingredients of the successful CDO? Everybody oh. listen closely now. <laughs> now this is where people test me to see if I remember <laughs> so um, I think the one that I always always start with because it's the most important to me is about passion for the data it's an interest in what we do um, a long long time ago I was at a conference I obviously do a lot of thinking and talking at conferences um, but I was at a conference in one of those user groups that you get stuck into <laughs> and this uh, fellow data person exclaimed that well you know it's really hard to convince people that what we do is interesting because it is kind of boring and I almost felt myself launch across the table at him uh, because I couldn't believe that you know he was claiming to be a data leader and this was his attitude hmm. because if we don't get excited about what this could do not necessarily the data itself I can completely get that you know the figure seven on its own without anything attached to it might not be the most exciting thing in the world, but the potential of using data and what it could do is for me fundamentally exciting. If I don't feel that passion, how could I convey that to anybody else in an organization? So I think this is the first secret ingredient right. absolutely has to be about the passion. And I think the other ones, I'll rattle through them very quickly because otherwise we'll take up the whole 40 minutes talking about them. But they're all about, you have to be credible. So data is such a broad subject. I wouldn't expect every chief data officer to be able to code in Python or everyone to be complete expert in governance, but they need to have come through a way of appreciating the data and be able to credibly lead people in this area. So I think that credibility is important. The fact that they have to communicate with stakeholders, tell stories, bring data to life, I think is critically important. Um, I think that the, now I'm going to forget all the other seven, but I remember the yeah. very last one, and I think it's, again, critical. It's a little bit of luck. And I think if you don't recognize that you need a little bit of luck, you're doing a bit of a disservice. Yep. All right. And, and you know, back to that passion and then tying it back to communication. Um, the, the, at least right now in today's uh, incarnation of CDO, um, they've got 363 compass points 
that they're managing relationships across and, and incredibly uh, oppor challenging opportunity <laughs> um, to be building that, that level of trusted, credible relationships across such a, you know, I mean, truly around you know, the points of the compass is uh, a daunting task without a doubt. Um, so when I look at the organization um, as a CDO and I'm, you know, journeying through the first 100 days, um, it, there's a concept that comes out of the book that you need to constantly be monitoring for uh, what the organization really is looking for from you as a CDO versus the original uh, agreement between you and the C-suite. Can you expand on that a little bit? Well, I think um, a lot of organizations, and it depends on how influential you've been and how, much com how many conversations you've had before you actually uh, accepted the role if you're a new chief data officer um, but in a lot of cases a lot of organizations don't quite know what they want when they first get a chief data officer so they might have an idea but it might they might really need a governance heavy person because they've got a lot of um, legislative regulatory requirements that they need to get on top of before you can get onto the more uh, value add side of things mm -hmm. and they may not realize that before you come on board I like to think of it, it's a bit like course correcting. You're still trying to necessarily get to the same place. But the way I tend to think about it is a plane can leave London and go to New York and never follow the same route because the autocorrect is constantly taking account of wind pressure, speed, the way it's being pushed. So while it always looks like every plane leaves London, lands in New York, the actual route is constantly being corrected and honed to make sure that they land in the right place. And I think that's the best way of thinking about it. It's that constant, am I still heading in the right direction? How am I being pushed? And how do I react to that push yeah. to make sure that I am going to land in New York? I love that. Um, and then, you know, that balance, that offsetting of, I know I need to take care of governance because it's top of mind. And it behooves me as a chief data officer to take that to heart because while I think data as an asset has value, do I really know what the black market value is of that same data asset, right? Because it could be 10x. I mean, we, we've seen some legacy events there. We've seen some absolutely legacy events of how it could happen. And sometimes organizations with best in the world shoot their own foot off when it comes to data. Um, one organization that we've worked with in the past was adamant they wanted to sell sp some specific data sets. They were very unique to them. However, after doing a bit of work with them, it was pretty obvious that they would make, uh, I'm sure, a lot of money from selling those data sets. If they did, the rest of their data, the rest of their business model was blown out of the water. So they would probably make a bit. They had no rest of the business if they decided to sell it. So actually, the value was of selling the data was negative to the business. Oh, wow. Mm -hmm. So you gotta so, be very holistic in your thinking. So you have to be very holistic in your thinking and think about the whole big picture, which is why it's all that, you know, you have to have that North Star. What are you actually trying to achieve with this data? Mm -hmm. So there's all this passion. I'm hired in as a CDO and I'm sitting at the table with a very crowded C-suite um, and everybody's all fired up. And then I get out there and I start looking around and getting into the organization. And I realize there's, an ingrained business as usual um, 
motivation out there? What do I do? Um, what I tend to do in those circumstances, what I tend to advise in those circumstances, is why make your life difficult? You go after the low-hanging fruit. You're there for a reason, so somebody will be interested in what you do. Mm -hmm. And go work with them first. And it's not about making you look good. It's about making them look good. So you put the focus on what you can achieve for them, what problems you can solve for them. And I'm sure that nobody else has seen this, but on the odd occasion, I've noticed that very senior people tend to be a little bit competitive. Mm -hmm. So if you can make one of them around a senior table look absolutely amazing and accidentally make the rest look not quite as good as a result, mm. you'd be amazed at how many of them will be banging on your door trying to get to, to change the business as usual so you can make them look good too. Mm -hmm. And, and, and I, I don't know if we've unveiled this, but there's this concept that you bring out in the book around two kinds, two, two execution horizons around the data strategy. So it's not a data strategy. No, and um, we actually talk about sometimes it's, it's three strands, but in essence, um, data strategies, we focus on the immediate and the target. And the reason why, and a lot of it, to be honest, that's probably oversimplifying it, but I think it's the simplest way of getting the concept over. A data strategy shouldn't be something that you chisel into store and then put on the wall and treat like they're the 10th commandment. Mm -hmm. You know, they really should be a living, breathing document, especially in the first year or two of creating it, mm -hmm. because we often find that as your capability grows, the ambition of an organization gets so much bigger and faster very quickly. So the data strategy then has to keep pace with that ambition and be mm -hmm. constantly pushing the boundaries. Mm -hmm. But in a lot of organizations, the immediate targets and the immediate strategy is focused on, well, how do you get the best from what you've got now? You've probably got technologies that can help you if you used it right. If you could just find the one policy that would make a difference, you can help that. A little bit of education can go an awful long way with helping people understand why they should fill the forms in properly and not just hit the top of the drop-down box. Yeah, right. So there's simple little things that you can do to really get that immediate value that you know will get you along the right step. While at the same time, the target is you running into the field with the flag, trying to find the right spot to put it down into. Mm -hmm, exactly. And, and you know, we're, we're very um, strong advocates of taking a lean product management mindset towards how to find the right value and, and continuously deliver it, and then being agile in the, our execution model, and the immediate or the yeah the immediate data strategy, you know finding those those tactical wins, um, resonated with me very much. Is like it's the supporting tactical execution model that's running underneath a, a, a longer term target, um, and you. and probably doesn't go away. I'm always going to be executing in immediate mode against a longer term strategy. I think so. And I also, because I think the way sometimes we talk about it is especially when people are in business as usual modes, it's often like being on a hamster wheel. So you're just constantly not getting off the hamster wheel. And in a lot of cases, those immediate uh, initiatives that you can do, you may do nothing more than buy somebody the equivalent of five minutes off the hamster wheel. Mm -hmm. But that five minutes can buy you another five minutes can buy and it allows you the thinking time and the space to slowly get off the hamster wheel. Yes, I love that. Yeah. yeah. Five minutes might feel like an eternity if, if I've been stuck on a hamster wheel for, for 10 years. <laughs> so um, how do I avoid the hype cycle? 
because there is a hype cycle, right? Ex expectations are high. And, and more importantly, I picked up on that there is some general criticism of the, the true hype cycle. There was a little bit of, um, I think it's oversimplified when it comes mm -hmm. to it. Mm -hmm. So um, I'm not going to name names, that would be rude of me. But I think when it comes to the, the hype cycle experience is how we took it for new chief data officers going into the role. Mm -hmm. um, it starts before you take the role. The expectations are set before you walk through the door. Mm -hmm. um, I know that I'm not alone. I've walked into organizations as a chief data officer and found my name on the risk register as the solution to all their data problems, not my title, my actual name. Now, as good as I am, me alone in the first two weeks is not going to solve every problem they've ever had with data. Mm -hmm. So you can see what kind of expectations were being built up there. Right. So the simplest way of getting off the hype cycle before it even starts is to do that kind of expectation setting about what you are going to do and then doing all those quick wins that you talked about. Mm -hmm. I don't really like that those particular words, but yes, those, those immediate value pieces mm -hmm. um, to work on the agile way about thinking, what can I deliver? What problems can I solve? And really turn it around from the expectations being up here to being a, I am going to set this and build and I'm going to solve problem after problem after problem. Mm -hmm. And then I'm going to teach you how to solve the problems with me. Yes. And, and your concept of data to wisdom. Can you show so, just a little bit about that? I like, I like the idea of um, the way I tend to think about data is it's a single piece of data, like a single piece of Lego. So on its own, it's not really terribly inspiring. Mm -hmm. But if I can put um, a bit like Lego, so if I have a child, child, he's 18 and much bigger than me now, but when he was littler, if I'd given him a single piece of Lego, he would have laughed at me. But if I'd given him a big box of Lego with lots of different color bricks in, lots of sizes, lots of themes, he could have done some amazing things with that. And that's the way I like to think about Lego. So for me, you have the data, which is the building blocks. It's the individual blocks that you can do something with but it's what you do with it. So we talk about it going through data to information, to knowledge, to wisdom. And the way that I example, a really simple example I think I use in the book is about, if I say to you red, it's a single piece of data, it doesn't mean anything, it doesn't really help you. If I say it's a red traffic light, that's now information, that is collated, created information, you can do something with it, but it's still not terribly useful to you because there's a lot of variables missing in that statement. If I say that you're in a car traveling towards a red light, then you should be able to make a decision on that. You should be able to take an action and do something with it. The bit that I think a lot of organizations, I think a lot of organizations stop there, but the really exciting part for me is the, um, the wisdom side of it, the insight side of it, which is the future prediction about what could happen and actually putting interventions in place. So to stretch that analogy a little bit further, it's, you're in a car, you're traveling towards a red light. However, it's stormy. The road has lots of leaves on it. It's winter. So you use your knowledge and you're um, now to this point of going, well, in this particular scenario, if I apply the brakes where I normally would, I could well go through that red light without meaning to. So I now need to change the decision I make, predict what could happen and change my behavior. And, that, and I think that's the exciting place for a lot of organizations to try to get to. Mm, very cool. So 
is a CDO and a disruptor, disruptor, innovator? What's a CDO? Now, so I think that, and I have to say, this is one that every single time Peter and I, um, my co-author, talk about this, we end up arguing, but sometimes we argue for one position, sometimes we argue from another one. So obviously that tells us how fixed we think uh, this particular subject is. But my personal opinion, the way I tend to think about it is, the CEO themselves is an innovator. They are trying to push boundaries. The data should be the disruptor and what you find through the data, which causes the real disruptions. And I think the only caveat I put on that is that we tend to think of disruption as a negative thing. And I don't think it is. I think disruption is a really positive thing if used appropriately. So actually using data as the catalyst to really disrupt your business but doing it knowingly and intelligently, again, that could be a really powerful thing for a lot of organizations. Yeah, I'd agree. And as an information um, or analytics stakeholder, um, I really appreciate my experience with Lyft versus taxis that I used to deal with as a traveling man. So, <laughs> <laughs> so um, the CDO probably, probably needs a tribe, huh? We talk, what kind of team does the CDO need to start thinking about building? Oh, the CDO needs as much help as they can get. Um, I think the, the, the important thing about building your tribe, building your team around you is to know yourself. So you need to know what your strengths are, what things you're good at, what things you're maybe not so good at. And I'm actually not a big fan of trying to cover your weaknesses. I think the much better way of looking at it is to play to your strengths. So what are you good at? What can you really bring to an organization? What do you know you need to bring in to be your really good second, the person that you can trust to look after things when you're not in the office or not doing something? Mm -hmm. But in essence, you need to make sure that you're covering the whole data value chain. So you need to make sure that you're thinking about uh, where the governance section comes from, where your customer facing stewards are coming from, where your analytics, where your products, where your engineering, where your data science is coming from mm -hmm. and making sure that that is right size for your organization. Again, I think this is another part where people focus on perfection a little bit too much. Mm -hmm. So they think that to do the world's best job, they have to have a team of hundred. I've seen organizations start with a team of six and it works. Yeah. It's good enough to get going and start buying time off the hamster wheel. There you go. Yeah, yeah there you go. Um, there was a concept that came out of your book too, that uh, as an effective servant leader, which a CDO is, mm -hmm. um, if you have the right tribe and you've got those lieutenants, you start to impart your intent and let them figure out how to achieve your intent as opposed to being too prescriptive in what you need them to, to do for you. I'm a big, big fan of hiring people who are better at their job than I am. <laughs> exactly. All right, let's talk about the next 300 days. So we've been on this 100-day journey. We got teams put together. We're building credibility, generating a big pile of money. We've overcome business as usual. Time we have, we have. And I think it's, um, we've started to make a change. So this is when people, if you think about it, where you've, you've worked on some of your quick wins, you start to make people look good at this point. And you've got a few people peeking up over the fence going, oh, hang on, what's going on over there? So this is where you start to generate more interest in what you're doing. Mm -hmm. um, a really key part of this time is prioritization. 
because it will be too easy to get overwhelmed with the tide that will start and come towards you at this point in time in making sure that you're going to do the right thing, not necessarily the loudest thing. Mm -hmm. Right. And then let your team build up the right ways to do the things. Exactly. And that's where you really focus on the team. And um, again, one of the things that I've seen happen during these 300 days is the CEO becomes insular because there's so much to do that they start and focus on the doing, which I'm not saying is a terrible idea, but I like to think of the chief data officer in the 300 days being very salesy in marketing, if I'm perfectly honest, about what their team are doing, the capability. Data people, I find, and myself will be included, we're problem solvers. So our mind naturally goes to the next problem we can solve and the next. And if anybody's like me, it's never quite good enough. So how can I solve that problem better, faster, etc.? If you do not tell the organization, sing to the organization about what not you're achieving, but what they're achieving, what your team are achieving, what they're doing, then people don't see it. They don't think anything's happening. Then it's not about getting credit. It's about making sure that your team and what you're doing is valued so that the support can continue to carry on. So you don't just do 300 days, you do 600, 900, et cetera. And the credibility for the team continues to build so that the embedment of the work can continue to happen. So let's shift gears a little bit. Um, we talked about different generations of CDOs. Can you touch on the first versus second? And is there a third coming? There is a third, so yeah. Uh -huh. okay. So we talk about, um, and it comes back to that pendulum a lot that we talked about. So uh, first generation chief data officer tends to be where there hasn't been a chief data officer before. They come up in and they're very, very focused on the risk adverse side of the role. Um, they're focused on legislation, regulation, um, general governance, making sure that um, there is some level of data quality running through the organization and things like that. The second generation has a really strong focus on the value add side of the pendulum. So this is where you can get into some of the very technical term I like to call the whizzy bang, things like machine learning and AI and all the wonderful things that you can get out of those. Um, however, so a lot of people say, well, how do I know what type of chief data officer I am? And it's where you spend the majority of your time. So if you're spending 80% of your time worrying about governance and not about what you can do with the data, you're first generation. But actually, if you've walked into an organization and you're lucky enough that a lot of that's in place and you might have to keep an eye on it, but it kind of takes care of itself and you focus 8% of your time on the value add side and what you could really drive, then you're a second generation. The real art comes in the third generation. And I think that's starting to build more and more. And that's where you've got your team built, you're very well established. And actually that pendulum swings freely. So it's not about, I have to focus here or I must be in this part of the pendulum swing. It's about, being able to absorb all the different parts of the role and properly use your team around you so that you have that perfect balance of what the organization needs. Mm -hmm. uh, and with a lot more opportunity to generate that value is what I was- Massive amount of opportunity. Yeah. So you, you hinted at, you know, find what kind of CDO you are, uh, chief data officer you are, and then um, given that, that probably influences how you present yourself as the chief data officer to the enterprise. It completely totally does. And that 
goes a hole onto applying to your strengths, knowing what you're good at. I think a lot of chief data officers tend to be extroverted because especially you have to be able to sell the data and tell stories with it and really bring it to life for people. I have seen chief data officers that aren't extroverted, they're quite introverted, but what they do is make sure that in their team, they have somebody who can happily switch that role with them and really spend some time going out to the business and selling the team. I mean, that whole idea can work, but it is important that you understand that you have to strike a balance. I feel like I'm using that balance word a lot when we're speaking today, Mike. And but I think that's a critical that you continue to do that because it's, yep. It, I think it just plays so much into what we do. Um, especially when it comes to data, you cannot get yourself lost in the detail. And that's too easy to do when it comes to data. By definition, if you're a leader, you have to be able to think strategically. So you have to be able to keep your head out of the weeds and know that you're there leading the organization in this space. Mm -hmm. Okay, yet we're expecting the chief data officer to know his or her technology as well as know the, the value I should be generating in the business, know the business strategy. Um, they have to align with governance because ethics is coming at us hard and heavy, right? So that's, a, again, an incredible superhuman feat going on here. Right? But it's yeah, I think, I think we should all be, you know, we should all have Mary Poppins attached, practically perfect in every way, attached onto our name. So Mike, Mary Poppins, Lampa, that's how we're going to talk about from now on. Full of sugar. Absolutely. <laughs> Little, you know, come down on the um, umbrella. But no, I think we, we do get that that's an awful lot we're asking for one individual. Yes, it is. Um, this is where it isn't about the individual. This is why we put so much focus on the team. Mm -hmm. And um, I think if I use the phrase swan dance, I think um, that if that conveys, so that's the whole idea that the chief data officer looks serene, they look in control, they look like everything's going really well. And underneath the surface, they are padding like anybody else in that circumstance. <laughs> Exactly. <laughs> and that's where you use your whole team to kind of make sure, come on team, start pedaling in this direction. We need to, we need to keep going. Mm -hmm. And that's, I think that's important. That's why it isn't about one person trying to overload themselves or overwhelm themselves. Um, but it's about making a difference. It's about taking that next right step. Mm -hmm. Yep. There was one concept that came out of the book that I, out loud, I said, thank you, Carolyn and Peter. Um, explain a little bit the delineation between data and information. We touched on it a little bit when we talked about knowledge and wisdom. But. We did. So, you know, data in its own, right, it's just another, it's useless, being perfectly honest. I mean, I love data, but it is absolutely useless. And it's like the whole single piece of data. It means nothing. So seven, aardvark, red, they're single pieces of data, but on their own, they're absolutely useless. Mm -hmm. um, but when you put different pieces of data together. So if you create them, you collect them together, you um, create them in such a way you can do something with it. That for me is when they become information. If I can start to make a decision on it, mm -hmm. if it gives me something that I would consider useful that I can use to tell a story with, mm -hmm. that's information. However, it's fundamental that we get the building blocks right. So it isn't as simple, and I had this wonderful um, conversation recently about somebody wanted to talk about the difference between data management, information management, and knowledge management, and how there were three separate things. And my argument is they're actually not three separate things, but what they are 
are different perceptions and different flavors mm. of the same thing. So we should be thinking about them as an end-to-end process, not as silos in their own right. Mm, I love that. Yeah. And and your concept of you know the impact on proper collection and creation of the data, the, and then the curation of the data, and then I think the other uh, C in your C squared or C cubed rather was contextualization. So it's the right kind of data. Sorry, yes. Yeah, yeah, I love that. Yeah. So we're in the middle of a data revolution. We are definitely in the middle of a data revolution, and it's getting uh, faster and faster every day. Um, but I think there's two data revolutions going on. So um, I think that we talk about, you know, we've heard the phrase the fourth industrial revolution, mm-hmm. which I think is fascinating in its own right. And um, without going off on a complete different tangent, I love the idea that we're living through an industrial revolution and we're advanced enough as a species to know we're living through an industrial revolution. So how can we learn lessons from history that make this one a little bit easier for us to get to? I think one of the wonderful heartening statistics that I've seen um, a historian that I've talked to about this phrase is while it can feel like there's an awful lot of turmoil when you go through industrial revolution, um, one of the statistics that always holds true is that the number of jobs that you go into the revolution with, you always leave the industrial revolution with more. So more people will find something that'll be hopefully more fulfilling, there will be another role for them, but that can be a bit hard if you're one of the people that jo- whose job changes quite fundamentally. And, you know, you can imagine um, from one of the early industrial revolutions, if you were a weaver making cotton and suddenly a giant machine came along to do your role, that is not a nice situation to be in. So I think um, you can understand this like period of turmoil that we're going through. Yes. However, um, I think it's heartening to know that there's a positive coming at the end of it and being a glass half full kind of person, I always like to focus on the positive. I love that. But I think the data revolution that I think excites me and really does excite me is the one that happens within um, each organization. And it's the one that really the chief data officer should be leading. Mm-hmm. So that's the one where you start. And, and I talk about myself being a data cheerleader. So I'm constantly talking about the power of data and what it can do. And I think the revolution that each data cheerleader in an organization should do is to convert as many other people to be data cheerleaders as possible and that's the revolution there you go so we have a nice squad yeah big tribe of data cheerleaders yeah so we talked a lot around the chief data officer themselves rightly so since ergo the name of the book um but what about advice to the business owners and the ceos and the board even you know kind of parting advice I think um, the, the advice that I would give them is, is a, to keep an open mind. I think it can be um, disconcerting when a new role enters the C-suite. So if they haven't worked with a chief data officer before, there's a little bit of who's this imposter at the end of the table. I think the cartoon in the book I absolutely love looks like a little picnic table that's been stuck next to the yeah. nice board, board table. Uh-huh. And it can sometimes feel a little bit like that when you first come in. I think the role, pardon me, I think the role that the chief data... Oh, This is where the water comes in handy. Mm -hmm. Thank you. I think the role that tends to jar the most when a chief data officer comes on board, if it's not well prepared, is the CIO, because with them having information in their title, it can be a little bit of like, who's this new kid on the block that's trying to pinch what I ordinarily do? So I think establishing a good relationship 
with the CIO when you first move in is the first critical one that you should spend an awful lot of time on. Yeah. And for me, a lot of that is about explaining how you're going to make their life easier. Um, I talk about how the difference is the chief data officer looks after the water and the CIO looks after the, the bucket, the container. So the CIO is making sure that the container is in the right place, is the right size, doesn't have any holes in. The chief data officer is talking about where the water is coming from, where it's going to, how long it's spending in the bucket, it's the right quality of water, and is it being used appropriately? Those two roles have to be incredibly symbiotic because, for instance, the CIO can't move the bucket without talking to the CDO, but the CDO can't as well double the size of the water coming into the bucket without talking to the CIO. There you go. And I think that makes life a lot easier if they both realise they've got a really strong part to play um, in it. So that would always be the first one that I would spend a bit of time on. But for the rest of the executives, it's about just being a little bit open-minded and understanding that this thing called data, it's not that worrying, it's not that complicated. Even at a senior level, I find that there's still maybe a level of fear when it comes to data and it's all because you could be fantastic at finance you could be absolutely incredible at marketing um but maybe you don't quite get this data things and sometimes as data people we can use terms and we use words that don't make it easy for people to understand what we're talking about mm -hmm. so i think sometimes and this comes back to us it's about making sure that we use a language that everybody can understand perfect Bailey, do we have some questions Unmuting, we do indeed. Right. Uh, yeah, we have actually quite a few coming in um, and I want to do justice by them. So I know Lisa had asked a question early on and I'm, I don't know if you guys will remember um, what this was in reference to or Lisa, you can perhaps chime in again on the chat, but she asks, it was about 15 minutes into the conversation. Do we have any examples of the intangible becoming tangible? You know what I'm talking about. I think I do. I think, hi Lisa, um, I think it was about when we were talking about um, when you're creating a business case and you talk about the tangible items being on the governance side and the intangible items um, being the really value add type of thing, but you have to try and turn the intangible tangible over a period of time. So um, there's a lot of examples that I can think of and really it's about collecting the data. So if, for instance, one of those intangibles was um, we could make our customers happier. You know, as a really simple, you know, we can make our customers happier, they will buy more stuff from us. Well, that's fine, but that in itself just sounds like a nice pretty statement when you say it. So what kind of data are you gonna to have to collect to make that right? So do you do any kind of customer satisfaction surveys? Uh, do you understand how many repeat customers you have? What kind of data would you have to collect so that in a year, two years time, you could um, say you could actually implement the science part of data science, for instance. So what hypothesis did we put in place? What we were expecting to happen? What did we have to collect and did it work or not? And know that you've got the data to be able to back up any statement and course correct. Does that answer the question? Mm -hmm. Sounds like it does. Thank good. you. Very good. Yeah, thank you. Yeah. Um, okay. So the next question we have is coming in from Kamal. And uh, the first question is, how has the CDO role changed over the last few years? Um, I think that it's changed immensely. And I have to say, it's not just over the past few years. 
So, I mean, I think 10 years ago, it felt a bit Wild Westish to me. So there wasn't really much out there to help us with it. And I think that's why we've got such strong a strong community around data, because we all banded together a little bit because we needed to. We're a very nice bunch. We like more people coming to join the party, come and join them, yeah. um, which was great. But especially over the last, um, I'd say, three years, and I have to use the C word here, the whole COVID situation, mm-hmm. um, What one of the really positive, and I know it's bizarre to think about that in terms of any, any positives, one of the really positives that came out of that for me was in the IT space. We actually suddenly figured out that good enough was actually good enough. So we didn't need to make systems perfect, but we did need to make sure that people could still work at home and be safe and do that. And how could we do that and follow the 80-20 rule? So it was good enough. Mm-hmm. And conversely, so that was our IT colleagues doing some brilliant things and learning a lot. And conversely, what happened was that people could work at home, but they needed the data to still be able to do their role. So I think the importance that data has seen in the last few years has shot right up to the highest levels and the importance of it. So now we're having very strategic conversations with organizations, and I'm sure, Mike, you are as well, um, in a way that potentially we weren't necessarily having three or four years ago, because you don't need to convince people that data is important. They're much more interested in, all right, I get that part. So how do I continue on the next part of the journey? Yeah, and I would add to that, just if I may, Carolyn, um, the, the level of rigor and discipline that the chief data officer and chief analytic officer, but the C-suite focusing on data and analytics, um, making sure that we're putting the right level of rigor and discipline and technique across the entire asset lifecycle of those data products and asset products or analytic products. Mm-hmm. That's a huge role that the chief data officer is bringing to the table. Mm-hmm taking the CDO out of that imposter seat. Like you said earlier, <laughs> there you go. There's Get no him out of the kids table. <laughs> yeah, this is a, a necessary role. Um, okay, uh, the second part of uh, Kamal's question was, can you please talk a bit about the importance and selection of the right tools for the CDO to use? Mike, do you want to start or do you want me to? Yeah, well, you know, certainly start, don't, my one piece of advice is don't start chasing shiny pebbles, right? Make sure you leverage what you have to get started. Um, however, I will also balance that with put together an ongoing technology manager, matters um, observability desk, if you will, somebody that's constantly looking at, because there's incredible technology coming out, I mean, daily now. Um, and some at some point we're we're going to figure out as an industry how to truly encapsulate the data asset as this encapsulated thing that i could move around to different enabling technologies without disruption mm-hmm. i love that i think i love that idea that we can separate it from the technologies i think that is really where it needs to be and it needs mm-hmm. to be where it moved to um i think i'll just kind of go back to the whole conversation i had around the cdo and the cio rule as well and don't assume you need to do everything uh, on your own so while I absolutely think in the way that Mike just said, the CDO needs to be aware of emerging technologies. It needs to be aware of the art of the possible. Absolutely. Shouldn't have to do all the heavy lifting on your own. So the CDO's focus should be out on the outcome and the changes you're trying to drive and work with the CIO on, I want to get here. How can you help me get over here? And I've got some ideas, but come on. Yep. Perfect. Yep, and that's a really good segue, Mike. Um, I'm going to drop into the chat right now. Mm-hmm. 
to everybody. We have, uh, this is a question that we have to answer all the time at Great Data Minds. And so um, coming up in March, we have our third annual Technology Matters Marathon. And this is really, I mean, it's a free event. It's showcasing some of the coolest pieces of technology that are out there. Uh, this is something that we're, we're expected to speak to all the time. So we keep a very close eye on what is coming, what's new, um, you know, what, who, who's doing what and what are the next um, iterations to come out. So uh, I dropped that into the chat for all the attendees if they are interested in joining it. It's a free event. Um, so there's that. Next question. Let me keep an eye on the time because I want to be mindful. So we've got a couple minutes left and we have more questions for sure than we'll be able to um, answer in this time. So likely we'll send some sort of a follow up, but yep. we'll see how, how far we can get. The next question is coming in from Dave. Dave um, says that data and analytics offices can struggle to secure investment without associated demonstrable value gains. So what are your best techniques to measure the data and the analytics contribution in the value chain that may involve many other players, such as engineering, product, operations, commercial, et cetera? I, I think, um, I mean, I think we touched upon it just a little bit earlier. So I'm not sure when the question came in, but I think we touched upon a little bit on the focus when you're putting any kind of business case together has to be on the risk averse side. So it's how much money you can save the organization. It's a much, much easier way of building any kind of business case. Um, but you have to do the whole passionate and exciting thing as well. I think um, when it comes to making that, that governance tangible, it's about working with organizations and other parts of the organizations. The problem is, if you, meet, if you go to another part of the organization, say I went to finance and go, do you know what, you're taking 40 people full time to do X. And I think that we can make a change so you can do, use 30 people to do that. What you've just told them is, I'm going to take 10 people off you. Mm -hmm. So it's how you phrase that business case and you maybe put a joint case in with them on how they are then going to be able to redeploy 10 people. And then when we get into true business value generation, using techniques like behavioral story development that really has an as measured by componentry to it, which is going to be my performance target I'm going to measure to. And then when you design your data product and your analytic product and the pipelines in between, you've got to build in the telemetry that's monitoring the generation of that value. Right. Great. Um, okay, well, that brings us right up to the top of the hour here. So I think we will save these other couple questions and we can follow up um, in a, um, an email after the fact to, I know we've got a question from Kevin and then Lisa had a, a secondary question as well. So um, I think that uh, one last note, at least on my part, is that if you have enjoyed this session, um, I would invite everybody to join us for our next author series. Uh, event. This is going to happen Wednesday, April 6th, where we are going to interview Caroline's business, uh, business partner in crime, um, Peter Jackson, on the other book that they co-authored, which is Data-Driven Business Transformation. Um, so I've just dropped that link into the chat as well, another free event, and we look forward to uh, meeting Caroline's uh, other half. Yes. Um, and then, of course, if you want any more information on Carolyn and the work that uh, her and her consultancy are doing, you can reach them directly at Carolyn, uh, I'm sorry, at carothersandjackson.com. And then, as always, Great Data Minds is standing by to help. We can be reached directly at info at greatdatamines.com. Uh, and this was a great conversation today, Mike and nice. Carolyn. Thank you. thank you both so much. Carolyn, it was a genuine pleasure. Thank you. Really thoroughly enjoyed it. Thank you for having me both.
This is awesome. All right, enjoy your evening over there and we'll we'll get started <laughs> with the rest of our day over here. <laughs> Thank you. All right. All right. Thanks everybody. Have bye a good bye, one. Bye-bye everyone. Bye-bye.